attention. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thank you for listening to my podcast about horse training, equestrian sports, and building a better connection with your horse. It's time for Ride On with Julie Goodnight. Let's start with some updates from the ranch. By now, probably most of you already know that my big plan for this summer was to breed my mare, Annie. Um, But unfortunately, that didn't work out so well. We thought she was pregnant a couple of times, but both times she managed to shed the pregnancy. So it was, of course, highly disappointing and, um, and very expensive, but, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So at this point, uh, breeding season is over. We had to uh, kind of give up for this year, and chances are she didn't get pregnant because of her age. Uh, she's 16 this year, and since next year she'll be another year older, I don't think I'm going <laughs> to... I don't, uh, I know I'm not going to breed her again. Um, I think it would just be an additional waste of money. So I haven't yet decided what I'm going to do. If I want to buy a mare or lease a mare um, that I could start over with in order to utilize the stud fee I've already paid, but I'm just kind of putting off that decision. I've got a, um, uh, quite a while, months, six months or so before I have to um, really decide if, if a mare falls in my lap, I'll, I'll think about it a little harder, but, um, right now I'm just kind of letting go of the whole idea and I'll, I'll, I'll check back in a few months and see where I feel on that. So interestingly, Rich is thinking about buying another horse. He kind of, um, (laughs) has a, a habit of that. Um, I don't really think we need another horse, but he's got his hot eye on a horse that's in a performance horse sale in Montana next month. And um, when I heard he was interested in buying another horse, I suggested maybe he might want to look at younger mares <laughs> so I have something to breed to, uh, but he's not having anything to do with that. So he thinks we need another nicely trained horse so that we both have a backup horse and in his mind, that precludes mares. So I can't disagree with him on needing a backup horse. And I, truth be told, have a, a bad habit of, of shopping for horses as well. And um, so anyway, I can't disagree with him on the backup side. But um, oddly enough, there are very, very few mares in this sale anyway. And chances of it being the right fit for me, uh, for what I want to do in breeding are even slimmer. So these days with the price of horses, um, pretty much staying at historically high rates, most people are hanging on to mares and breeding them. So their value is going up and they're becoming increasingly harder to find even recipient mares. So this current climate is certainly not going to help me find a mare to breed to. So I'm probably just going to end up taking a total loss on the whole venture into breeding. So right now, as I'm making this recording, I am smack in the middle of a 750-mile cruise down the Inland River System of the United States aboard my own boat called the Legacy. 
We started out on the upper Mississippi River, just north of St. Louis. And right now we're about 350 miles south of there in a beautiful area of Kentucky uh, known as the land between the lakes. And we will take off from here in a few days, heading further south towards Alabama, where we'll park the boat for several months to wait out hurricane season um, with some inland protection before we head further south in the winter. So that's been a fun journey and uh, a nice distraction for me. Once I've got the boat secured in Alabama, I'm going to head home in time to get organized, get some work done, and then head over to Ireland for two weeks of clinics there. After that, I've got two programs at the Sea Lazy U Ranch in Granby, Colorado. The Horsemanship Immersion Program is October 17th to 22nd at the Sea Lazy U, and it still has a few openings in it. It's a five-day horsemanship clinic at this luxurious guest ranch, a beautiful ranch uh, high up in the Rocky Mountains outside of Denver. The program is all-inclusive of meals, lodging, and horses, and it includes riding lessons, trail rides, groundwork, training, and behavior, saddle fit, veterinary workshops, and a whole lot more. So check that out. You can uh, find out more on my website. Also, October 26th to 28th, I'll be doing presentations at the CHA International Conference, which this year is being held in Fort Collins, Colorado, at Colorado State University. Uh, mild stomping grounds. And I'm going to be doing a couple of this different presentations there. One is on teaching turnbacks um, to horses and riders. And another will be on teaching leadership in your groundwork. So the CHA conference is targeted towards riding instructors, trail guides, and horse facility managers, but it's open to anyone and everyone, and everyone is welcome. As an attendee, you can actually sign up to ride school horses in the clinics, so it's a very active and hands-on conference. It's a whole lot of fun and a very friendly and welcoming crowd at CHA, and it's always, always very educational, anything having to do with the Certified Horsemanship Association. I'm also going to be back finally um, at Equine Affair, Massachusetts this November. This will be my first time there since before the pandemic. So I'm super excited to see all my old friends. I've already heard from quite a few people who are going to be there and I can't wait. So it's going to, that's going to be a fantastic weekend in November. For details on these events and all my upcoming events, please visit juliegoodnight.com slash events. And to get the latest training advice and updates from me, be sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter at juliegoodnight.com slash news. You can find my online training resources, memberships, and one-on-one -on -one online coaching program at juliegoodnight.com slash academy. Plus, find innovative grooming tools, tack, bits, training equipment, and videos at shop.juliegoodnight.com. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Julie Goodnight. Last month, I shared five important tips for you to get the most from your horse 
and to help you feel more prepared to achieve your horsemanship goals. This month, let's talk about strategies to manage your anxiety and your horse's anxiety, how to boost your confidence and perform at your best on the day of your event, whatever that event is. I'll also share some specific tools and exercises that you can do with your horse to stay focused and calm, to perform at your best, and how to get back on track when things go wrong. You know, in the hard moments, whether you're preparing for a competition, a big trail ride, or building up the nerve to try something new, it's good to have a plan, a specific focus, or a mantra on the tip of your tongue for when you need it. Having these tools will help you build the mental discipline and specific strategies to employ that will give you a leg up in this sport. Whether your goal is modest or incredibly ambitious, I hope you're coming along for the ride on horse goals or bust. We've offered a step-by-step guide to help you achieve your horsemanship dreams this year. I've put together some helpful and free resources for you on goal setting, horse and rider fitness, skill assessment, and a lot more. You can find everything you need all in one place at juliegoodnight.com slash horse goals. If you haven't already, start now. And in the What the Hey Q&A segment at the end of this podcast, I'll answer questions from listeners about a trail horse that tailgates and a breakdown in communication with groundwork. Now, let's get started on the main topic. Well, it's finally here. Let's talk about mental strategies to manage day of anxiety, to boost your confidence, and to perform at your best. Whether your equestrian goals involve a competition, a trail ride adventure, or building the confidence to try something new, it's likely that you will experience periods of anxiety and moments of doubt in your journey. Look, this sport is hard. It's unreasonable to think everything will always go right and you'll never make a mistake. As Mark Twain once said, good judgment comes from experience. And a whole lot of that comes from poor judgment. So make peace with the fact that there will be good days and there will be some not so good days. Some things will go right and other things won't. And that's okay. It all will contribute to your portfolio of experience, the good and the bad. So what's your plan? You need to have a plan. You need to have a specific focus, whatever this riding endeavor you're adventuring on. And you may need to have a mantra ready for use in the hard moments in case you need it. And it's not just for you, by the way. It's important to have a strategy to keep your emotions in check and to keep your anxiety from getting the better of you so you can be the leader your horse needs. In other words, your horse is going to respond positively to everything you do to keep yourself focused and relaxed. I'll tell you a story uh, about my own adventure and my own personal journey. Um, This was you know, decades ago when I was uh, just coming of age as a horse trainer, actually. And I was switching to Western riding after a entire youth spent riding hunter jumpers. And then uh, all through college, I rode racehorses. And 
for those of you who are unawares, in both of those endeavors, you're riding with a lot of rain contact. And it was really hard for me when I was switching to Western to learn how to let go of the reins and how to ride my horse without contact. And it was the very thing I was most fascinated about with Western riding was that they could get these horses to perform incredible maneuvers with no rain contact at all. And I was determined to learn how to do that. But I found that riding with contact, direct contact, a direct feel of the horse's mouth in my hands was so ingrained in my muscle memory that it was almost as if my hands had a will of their own. They just automatically did it. Um, and obviously, the more nervous or unsure I was, the more I relied on the rain contact. But I was determined to be able to ride without the reins. So I made a committed effort to let go. I taught myself how to stop without reins with self-coaching and a simple mantra. Before every single stop I made on my horse, I would first, I would start by reminding myself several strides out well before the stop, reminding myself, I am not going to pull on the reins to stop. As a physical reminder, I'd then anchor uh, one hand or both hands down on the horse's neck. I'd touch the saddle pad. I'd hook, I'd hook a finger around um, the crook of the saddle pad or under the gullet of the saddle or, or even just touch the horse's neck. And then right before I came to the stop, place where I was going to stop, I would say to myself, and sometimes out loud, I would say, whoa, sit, reins. Whoa, sit, reins. And that was the rhythm I wanted to employ my aides. I wanted to first give the voice cue, then sit down on my horse, and then lift my hands. But it, it took months of practice to break uh, the ingrained muscle memory that I had in my body. Uh, but eventually I broke through and um, I, I retrained my body. I reschooled my muscle memory. And it took a very long time. It was not hours and days. It, it was months, maybe probably a year or two before I was really entirely <laughs> um, shed of having to rely on the reins. So I've used similar other mantras in, in other uh, situations for myself, and I have certainly used it in the teaching and coaching of riders. Uh, just two or three simple words that you can say that have a rhythm and a pattern and a sound that remind you of the most critical things you want to focus on. I did this in golf too. I, I had a really hard time learning how to hit the golf ball. And, uh, you know, of course, there's nothing so humiliating as uh, addressing the golf ball and then winding up and swinging and missing the ball entirely. And um, I had a husband that was constantly coaching me. And every time I'd step up to the ball, he, I, he, I'd hear a whole different uh, instruction. So I had to tune out all everything he said. I, it, was, it was well intended and I just tuned it out. And I had a three-word um, uh, mantra I would say to myself. I can't even remember it now. It's been so long. But um, it was something like eyes, you know, elbow, 
ribs or I don't know what it was, but it was just the, the, I winnowed all the information down to these three important things that for me were going to make the huge difference in whether or not I hit the ball, connected with the ball. And so I, I think those kinds of rituals and mantras are super helpful, particularly when it comes to horses and horse sports, because things are so complicated and the clearer and more uncluttered and more consistent your mind is and that you ride, the better the horse is going to respond because it makes things more clear for him and it makes things more simplistic for him and all of the focus is on the same thing. So um, I'm a real big fan of that. Let's talk about managing your day of the event anxiety. I think it's really important. And and the more times you hit the road with your horse, the more times you go on these adventures or expeditions or do whatever it is you're doing, you will figure out a routine, um, something that works for you to do prior to your event in order to stay calm and focused. Now, we're all a little bit different in this regard. You know, some people do not like to be alone with their thoughts and some people do. I'm I'm the latter. I, I like to be alone with my thoughts and I like a quiet environment. I like to be alone with my horse, myself and I, <laughs> and um, kind of get inside each other's head and um, try to um, block out all other distractions and, and thoughts. So whether or not you need a quiet environment, whether or not you need to be alone or with, um, with others. I think it's just something you need to figure out uh, about yourself. Sometimes people need distractions from getting too uh, wound up or too keyed up to keep their mind from spiraling in the wrong direction. A lot of us listen to music for that reason. I'm a big fan of popping the earbuds in, listening to some music. Um, I listen to a lot of different kinds of music and um, different different activities, different kind of music kind of deal. And um, I find that having music playing in the background really helps me focus. And uh, I don't know why, and I don't even know if it's really true, but it just makes, I feel that way. And I, I think that when you have um outside distractions, it's even, it's even better to be able to just focus on uh, music. So if you do uh, like to have people around you as you're preparing um, for this big endeavor, um, make sure the friends uh, or the coach that you use um, or the partner that you have in your endeavor are supportive. Pick your company wisely. Seek people that are positive, that help keep you calm that know you and know your, um, your needs. And, um, I think it's good to make sure that person is going to help you laugh. Laughing is a powerful stress release. I believe strongly that both people and horses learn better when there's laughter. Um, I've seen it over and over. I try to, if anybody's done clinics with me, uh, you probably already know, I try to keep people laughing. First of all, we're all having a good time and, uh, and I like to have a good time and I like to laugh myself. But, but more importantly, I, I've just seen over the decades that both people and horses do better when there's laughter. 
And for horses, I think it's calming to them. I think it relaxes them because intuitively they know that laughter is good and that it means everything's okay. And I think for people, it's a huge stress release. So we want to, um, you know, have fun, have fun. If you're not having fun, you shouldn't be doing this. Another really important tactic that I use in my riding, uh, particularly when the ride is challenging or difficult, is visualization. I actually use visualization in everything I do, whether it's driving the boat, whether it's, um, you know, golfing, as I said, or um, horses or, or my career, my business. Um, so I've always been a big fan of visualization. And, you know, if you're wondering what the heck does that even mean, it just really simply means having sort of an internal video playing in your head of exactly what you want to happen. For me, it's absolutely critical to my success as a rider. And I think that that's probably true of most high-level riders because with horse sports, it's even more important because the horse, remember, a lot of your body is connected to this horse as you ride it. When you're visualizing what's going to happen, the horse actually can feel it. He can actually, if you have a good connection with your horse, if you have that ultimate mind meld with your horse, um, and you're, then you're visualizing what you expect to happen, it's amazing how the horse can feel it. Because as you visualize, your body makes minute adjustments toward that goal. And the horse feels it and he responds. So I'll visualize the entire ride I'm about to make in my mind. And I'll play it over and over and over again, like an internal video. I'm going to break down each component of the ride. I'll break it down into its strides, into the individual maneuvers, where I'm going to pause, um, where the markers are. I want to picture exactly the way I want everything to look. And, um, you know, when you have that vision, you'd be surprised how often it actually plays out that way. Um, you know, I started out riding jumping horses, as I mentioned earlier, and I guess that's part of what ingrains visualization into me. When you are riding a course, a complicated course of jumps, they come at you really fast and you really have to have a plan in your head. You don't get to practice it ahead of time. So you really have to have a plan in your head of exactly where you're going to be in the arena, how many strides it's going to take you to get there, where you're going to take off for each jump, so on and so forth. And um, it's, it's, it's really, really productive. I'll tell you another little story um, about how visualization helped me do something really hard on a horse. I was at a ranch horse competition. And there were 40 riders. And it was actually a competition for non-pro riders. And I was the only open rider. And I wasn't really competing, but they were allowing me to ride just for the training. And because I was there and participating in the clinic that preceded the competition. And therefore, they put me dead last. 
So I was the 40th horse to go in the cow horse uh, class. And I had a very long wait. It's pretty much kind of was all day and, or at least all afternoon. It was mm, three, four, five hours. And I was sitting on the fence watching the first, I don't know, several, <laughs> two dozen maybe riders go. And I was sitting with my friend and colleague uh, who was there, who had been teaching roping for the clinic. He's a, he's uh, an accomplished ranch roper and team roper. And we were sitting there watching at the end of the arena, one rider after the other go and everybody's riding the same pattern. You ride a raining pattern and then you call for a cow and then you box the cow and then you take the cow down the fence a couple of times and then you rope the cow. And I roping is definitely not my forte. I had been sort of half-heartedly doing it because I was doing the ranch horse clinic and uh, I've never spent a lot of time practicing and that's, that's a sport you have to practice a lot. So uh, it's just not something I've ever done much of. And consequently, I'd never roped a steer before. And I sat there with my friend and we watched rider after rider. And he showed me how the cattle pretty much responded the same way every time. And when it came to the roping portion and he kept pointing to me where the sweet spot in the arena was to rope. And he showed me time after time, run after run after run. He said, watch, Julie, that cow's going to turn right there. Watch, that cow's going to turn right there. Watch that. He's going to turn right there. And I saw it again and again and again and again. And then I, as it, you know, came, as the hours went on, it came closer to my ride. I, I got on my horse. I went, started going through my personal ride ritual, which is to be alone with my horse. I go away from all of the fray. And I just warmed him up and then I, and he was quiet. He was soft. He was relaxed. So we just kind of hung out off in the corner of the showground. And I thought about that. Uh, and I was visualizing my ride and I kept visualizing that spot in the arena. So then when it finally came my turn, I go in there, I ride the raining pattern, I call for the cow. I box the cow uh, and I take the cow down the fence. It was beautiful. And then lo and behold, I, uh, oh, first I had to pull my rope out and then get, get organized to throw a loop. And when I finally fumbled through that ordeal, because I'm not very coordinated, um, I looked up and I was in the exact spot. I was in the sweet spot. I, the instant I looked up, I saw I was in the sweet spot and I literally just put my rope out there and the cow ran straight into it. I mean, I, I almost did nothing except I caught my first steer and I dallied that thing up and I have never been so excited in my life. And I believe strongly that happened through the coaching I got, through the visualization I did and through the focus that I brought 
to the arena. And I was so proud of myself that I decided to give up roping. So that was the last time I ever roped. That's the first and the last time I ever roped a steer. Now, when it comes to visualizing, there's a one kind of controversial, not really controversial, but um, some people say do it, some people say don't, is whether or not you want to watch other competitors uh, ride the pattern or ride the um, whatever it is that you're about to do. And I, I could, uh, you know, I, I could argue it both ways. I'm going to say in general, you might not want to do that. I think that that tends to, first of all, there's a tendency to compare yourself to others already. And I don't think that's a good way to go. I think you have to ride your own ride. You have to do the best for your horse. You have to, um, you know, be realistic about where you are in this journey and you just compete against yourself. You're not actually competing against others. That's kind of my view. So also when you watch other riders, unless they're riding perfectly in every stitch, I don't think you want the vision of that in your head. You certainly don't want a vision of an ugly ride in your head. You don't want a vision of a horse spooking or a horse refusing. Um, you don't want a vision in your head of a rider jerking on the horse's mouth or losing, you know, or, or doing something hideously wrong. So I would be, I would be cautious about watching other riders. Now, if you don't really have your own vision for yourself, I do encourage you to find a rider to emulate, to find a rider to study and watch, whether that's in person or on YouTube, it doesn't matter. Um, but I do think it is important to have some vision in your head, but I think that vision needs to be the perfect picture um, and nothing less than that. So if you're in whatever sport you're in, um, try to identify the, the rider you want to be just like. And it, and it could be a trainer. It could be somebody on the Olympic team. Who knows? You, somebody you'll never meet. Or it could be somebody that you know and, and a trainer you work with or a rider that you uh, know through competitions, whatever. After having a kind of bad injury in skiing, I had a confidence crisis when it came to skiing deep powder, which is where I had my wreck. And I found a female skier who is amazing. She's an incredible skier and she's a professional snowcat guide. And I just burned the image. I watched her time and time and time and time again. And I burned the image of how she skied into my mind. And then at the top of every run, I, that's the video that I have uh, going through my mind. I pretend like I'm her. And uh, so I think that there are lots of ways to create your own vision. Um, certainly studying the mechanics of your ride. Hopefully you have some good coaching, some good training, and you have good solid mechanics and components to your ride. Uh, that should also be a part of your vision. You know, what, what are the common mistakes that you make? Is, um, is it holding your hands too high? Well, part of your vision should be your hands being down on that horse's neck. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about get, getting on to the day of anxiety. Let's talk a little bit about your warm-up routines. Your, there's a few things for you to keep in mind in your warm-up routine. 
First of all, this is not the time to drill or school your horse. At this point, it's too late for training. It's go time. So don't get out there and feel like you have to reinvent the wheel. You have to drill, 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 or school your horse. It's too late for training now. So now you're going to pull from all the work you've done in the past. So don't get out there thinking you got to go through every little thing. Um, Your horse has an excellent memory, probably much better than yours. He didn't forget how to do this stuff. So don't don't drill on him. That's not going to set the right uh, tone for your ride. Uh, In other words, your horse is going to... uh, maybe develop some resentment, maybe develop some irritation. You know, why are you yelling at me? Why are you making me, drilling me on stuff I've done a thousand times? So instead, use this time to get your horse focused on you and to get his head in the game. Does your horse have a little extra energy? Maybe if he's not used to going to events, maybe there's a lot of strange horses around. Maybe there's just a lot of activity and distractions. Any of that, all of the above can lead to your horse having a little extra energy. In other words, a little bit of anxiety tends to key a horse up, right? Brings him more towards his flight response. If so, you probably want a long trod, maybe uh, lobe some circles, um, but don't get harsh. Don't get rough. Don't try to wear him down. Just try to kind of ride him through the anxiety, keep him moving forward, but in a calm and easy manner. Check in with your horse. And if he's responsive to you, just leave it at that. Don't overschool him. Don't override him. Um, Leave your horse the way you want him to be when you go into the, into the event, into the ring, into the ride. So, um, in other words, if you get on your horse and start warming up, and he's right there with you, and he's listening to you, and he's calm, and he's relaxed, I would just start slowly and casually walking him around, and I would try to leave him right in that mindset. Don't try to train him out of it. (laughs) Don't try to school him out of it. So if your horse is a little anxious and needs a little bit more of a warm-up, think about going back to basics. Do real simplistic stuff, simplistic cues, Simplistic activities like let's try to circle to the left. Let's try to circle to the right. Let's stop and back up a couple of steps. Anything simple that you can stop and praise him for and let him relax and let him kind of chew on that praise a little bit and let him think, wow, I got this. I'm a pretty good horse. I'm doing pretty good. That's the mindset that you're trying to instill in the horse. So oftentimes going back to very simple things give you the opportunity to bring the horse back, uh, to praise that horse, and then bring it, bring his mindset back to uh, where you want it to be. I'm a big fan of employing calm and relaxed lateral flexion. In other words, bending the horse's neck a little bit as I check in with him. I'm only going to do it one or two times. If he responds softly and um, to me and softly yields his neck to me, Um, that's all I need to know. One time. Okay. We're good there. As I warm up, I want to kind of change directions a lot because every time I change directions, we're kind of looking at something new, gives me an opportunity to bend his neck a little bit. 
And um, it just keeps him in my um, directive, in my control. And it kind of gives me uh, a little more connectivity with the horse. Also doing lots of transitions. So walk to trot to walk to lope. Um, again, keeps that dialogue going between you and your horse and keeps that line of communication open. But remember, don't overschool the horse or overwarm up the horse. Get him to the point you want him where he's listening and he's relaxed and hold him there. If you can get your horse there really fast, you don't need to saddle him up an hour before your ride. Um, but if he's young, if he's inexperienced, if he's got a lot of anxious energy, then uh, you might need a little more time on your warm up. You know, it's so important that you keep your emotionality in check with your horse. Um, your emotionality affects your riding and tension is the main thing you want to watch out for. Whether you're nervous, excited, anxious, no matter what your emotion is, it's going to have an effect on your body. Uh, maybe you're just simply concentrating really hard. That too, it's going to have an effect on your body. And tension is the main thing you want to watch out for. Everyone holds their stress differently in their body. In other words, we all do something a little bit different when we tense. Some people tense in the shoulders. Some people crane their neck. Some people lock their jaw. Some, you know, you could be anywhere. Um, but the good news is whatever you do, you probably do it the same way every time. You don't one day tense in your neck and the next day tense in your hips. You do it the same way every time. So once you identify where you have the greatest tendency to tense up in your body, then with a little self-discipline, you can fix it. So let's talk about the most common places that riders tense. And I just started immediately making a list. I didn't really prorate this list in any kind of um, most frequent or, um, or most common these are just the things that I constantly am correcting riders for as I coach them. Um, one is closing the pelvis. So a lot of people, when they tense, they kind of tense in their hips. And any tension in your hips at all is going to close the angle of your pelvis, bring weight onto your crotch, and it's going to have a huge negative effect in your riding. So this is um, moving towards the motion of an arched back. It, from there, a lot of really um, negative things will sort of spiderweb out in your, in your riding, in your position, and leads to balancing, which leads to more tension. And um, so, so things can really go awry there. So I guess that's why I put it first. So uh, making sure one thing that I always make sure I'm doing is sucking my belly button in, kind of rotating back on my seat bones, tucking my tailbone underneath me and actually rounding my lower back um, in counter action to any kind of tension that might occur there. Another really common thing to do uh, when you tense and uh, particularly if you're tensing in the pelvis is to sort of perch forward and then clench with your legs around the barrel of the horse. Those two things kind of go together. And so uh, actually all three of those things. So you tense in the pelvis that perches you forward. And then oftentimes people then 
sort of clench with their legs. So the heels come up, they press on the stirrups and the heels kind of dig into the sides of the horse. So this dynamic is one of the most destructive to riding because uh, it sends a lot of tension to the horse. It sends a go cue to the horse. And then the rider is generally not wanting to go and getting tenser and getting nervous. So the rider starts pulling back on the reins. And then, the, you know, you got a whole downward spiral that happens there that's not, not too pretty. Oftentimes, a more subtle form of tension we see in the back or in the shoulders. You know, some people lift their shoulders when they tense. Some people kind of cave in at the sternum. Some people tense in the shoulder blade area. It's Everybody can be slightly different. Some people will tense and grip in the upper part of their abdomen and kind of get this sort of hollowed looking in their upper body. It's, uh, it, it, it can be those types of um, braciness in the abdomen or chest can be difficult um, to diagnose, shall we say, um, but it's something that you want to look out for. Neck craning, real common one, looking down, holding the hands too high. These are all things that happen as people start getting tense or nervous or concentrating too hard. So be aware of what your own tendencies are. And once you know them, then that should become part of your mantra. If your tendency is to tense your shoulders and to hold your hands too high, then uh, low hands, low hands, low hands, whatever needs to be part of your mantra. Now let's talk about how your emotions and anxiety can affect your horse. You know, Horses are instinctively programmed to adopt the emotions of the animals around them. That's part of being a prey animal and part of being a flight animal. So when one horse in the herd becomes nervous, they all become nervous. When one horse in the herd prepares for flight, they all prepare for flight. So that illustrates how important it is for the rider to be in control of her own emotions because they're going to bleed over to the horse, whatever emotion you have. So if that emotion is confident, if that emotion has a clear vision of what's about to happen, then um, your horse is adopting that same kind of emotion. You know, horses are instinctively fearful around strange horses and in unknown environments. So if you're big endeavor with your horse involves traveling somewhere new, you have to be aware that it's going to be normal and expected for your horse to be nervous in that situation. He needs you to give him confidence. He needs you to show him that everything's all right. It's everything's normal. This is how we always do it. So you controlling your emotions is critical to how your horse is going to respond to these uh, difficult situations. Also, sometimes when you're at an event with a lot of other horses, somebody else's horse is getting excited. Somebody else's horse is having a meltdown or going past the threshold, shall we say. And how does that affect your horse? Well, it could affect him a lot. Again, horses are programmed to act like the horses around them. So I want to be really smart about this. I want to try to stay away from things like that. I want to have a plan 
to bring my horse's attention back to me. I want to have a plan to calm my horse down anytime he should need calming. And I want to have a plan to ride proactively in the hard moments so that we can just kind of ride past it, ride beyond it, or, or maybe just ride away from it. Also, sometimes at larger events, you've got to deal with other riders, other people who are letting their emotions and frustrations get the better of them. Um, maybe they're, they're zooming around the warm-up arena. Maybe they're having a meltdown with their horse and they're getting after the horse in ugly ways. Or maybe you're out on a trail ride and they're unable to control their horse. You need to have that strong connection with your horse. You need to take control of your horse, ride proactively, ride in a way um, that is familiar to your horse and that gets your horse's mind engaged and active. You know, it's unreasonable to think you'll never feel fear or anxiety when you're riding, especially when you're venturing into a new territory with your horse. But fear or nerves can cause you to freeze up on the horse. And that's one of the worst things that can happen. Instead, I want you to focus on what you can control and make sure you stay thinking and focused on your horse and proactive. Remember, the antidote to fear is these three things. You need to keep your eyes focused. You need to practice deep abdominal breathing. And you need to be incredibly aware of your body language. So keep your eyes focused on the environment around you. Breathe deeply. Inhale deeply and exhale fully. Try to breathe in a rhythm. And then make sure that you adopt a a confident posture. And if you don't know what that means, look up power poses on the internet. And the power poses are scientifically proven to make you feel stronger and more confident. And it's just a good way to help you sort of get command of your body language. But you never want to let your anxiety creep into your body language and posture. It's going to do bad things to your riding and it's going to transmit a signal of tension and fear to your horse, which is the last thing you want to happen. Let's talk for a minute about mental discipline and awareness. Believe it or not, you have control over the thoughts in your head, and you can choose to think positive and productive thoughts. Don't let the thoughts of what if scenarios or my horse is going to spook, creep into your brain. If you do, it'll creep all the way to your horse. So what if my horse bucks? What if my horse spooks? What if my horse trips and falls down? What if my horse runs away with me? What if my horse embarrasses me? Whatever these negative thoughts are, it's mind pollution. And it's not only going to have a negative effect on your riding, it's going to have a huge negative effect on your horse. Instead, you want to try to have the mindset that everything's going to go well. Presume your horse will respond as he's trained to do. Horses work really well off presumption. I'm not saying to ignore your horse. I want you to stay tuned into your horse and I want you to ride the horse that's underneath you at that moment. 
and be aware of how he's responding. But ride like you think he's going to do it. He will really respond to that. It's a thing with horses. I think I talked about this a lot in last month's episode. Your posture, your body language, your position in the saddle, where you look, how you breathe. These are all things you have complete control over. But it's a lot easier to manage when you have a plan. I like to breathe in rhythm to my horse's stride when I'm riding. I think it helps keep me relaxed and moving with my horse. And it brings a certain synchronicity with the horse. Now, I've been doing this for decades, so I don't, I don't even think about it anymore. But there was a time when I had to sort of program myself to breathe in rhythm with my horse's stride. Now it happens automatically. So when I'm breathing in rhythm with my horse's stride, from there, I can detect the slightest changes in my horse and I could adjust my aid sooner. Horses tend to mimic breathing as well. So when a rider is breathing well, using a good rhythmic deep abdominal breathing, the horse does too. It's important on the day of your event that you trust your skills and you trust your horse. You've been working on this for months now. You've been practicing, you've been dissecting, you've been coached. You need to trust that you can use the skills you've developed when you need them. So stop micromanaging your horse and trust your horse to do his job. When you ride without trust and faith in your horse, he's going to feel that. And in general, horses tend to act the way you think they will act. And they tend to do what you're thinking about. So if you think he's going to spook at something, he probably will. But if you think positively and you visualize your ideal ride, he's probably going to do that. So make sure that you do have trust and faith. You, you think about as you enter that ride, enter that arena, head out on the trail, that you're remembering all the times you've done this well with your horse. Remember what it, everything was like when it went well. That's um, the message you're trying to convey. Don't try to prevent your horse from making mistakes. Just correct him and clarify when he does make a mistake and move on. It's no big deal. He's, he's, he's an animal. He can't be perfect. He's not a machine. So it's inevitable that riders make mistakes and it's inevitable that horses make a mistake. No big deal. Correct and clarify and move on. And as soon as you move on, presume he's going to do it right from that moment forward. Um, so, so often I see riders, they get a little blip or a little glitch in, in their activity or their performance. And then um, they sort of project that into the rest of the ride. If you can master the art of immediately letting go and then erasing that thing from your memory and, and jumping right back on to that uh, video of your perfect ride, your horse will change immediately too. But when you hang on to that mistake and you start thinking, oh, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that again. I better make sure he doesn't do that again. Then you keep that memory alive and you, you, you ultimately end up setting your horse up to do it again. So when a mistake happens, make a correction, clarify, and move on as if nothing ever happened and erase it from your memory banks. Now, 
there will always be time when things do go wrong. And at those times, it's important to have a backup plan. Things won't always be perfect. And as I said, both you and your horse are going to make mistakes. And if you're venturing off into a new adventure, it may just be the adventure itself that is a little bit much for you and your horse in this moment. And we're just, you know, having a little bit of a a confidence crisis or whatever. Things aren't going to be perfect all the time. So have a backup plan. You know, it's how you actually handle the hardship in this endeavor that's going to make or break you as an equestrian. Anybody can do it when it's easy, but having a plan for how you're going to respond when things get rough, that's the hard part. So I think it's important to have a simple plan of action for if things go wrong, but unless and until you need it, ride your horse with authority and with the certainty that he's going to do it right. You know, many riders succumb to paralysis when something goes wrong and they tend to just shut down, stop their horse and do nothing rather than riding the horse in the way it's accustomed. So don't be that rider. Don't, don't pull back, clinch the reins and try to stop the ride and get off. When something scary happens on your ride, first, divert your horse's attention to another activity rather than focus on the scary thing. So ride past it, ride to something else, find another destination, go right, go left, do something, don't freeze up. Make sure in these difficult moments that you're riding proactively uh, with a lot of changes of direction and changes of speed so that your horse gets back into the groove of responding to your cues. This will also help you to start thinking again too. So start issuing directives to your horse in a way that makes him have to think about what you're asking and respond. Always ride the horse forward. Resist the temptation to stop. So many riders, when things start going a little bit rough, they want to stop the horse when that's rarely going to be helpful. Ride the horse forward. Go back to basics with simple maneuvers that the horse knows well. Go, stop, turn. You want to think about developing a uh, tool bag with some calm down cues in it for you and your horse. We talked about for you the calm down cues of deep abdominal breathing, breathing in rhythm to your horse, seeking out the source of tension in your body, um, developing a mantra. For your horse, calm down cues uh, may involve a little bit of lateral flexion, flexing the neck from side to side softly and slowly, a cue to lower the head. Uh, anytime we encourage the horse to lower his head down, he will automatically relax. And then I use a, a three-step circling exercise as a calm down cue where I will uh, make a two or three circles, small circles right, and then two or three small circles left. The first circle, I just flex uh, the horse's nose towards my knee. Um, the second circle, I lift my hand up just a little bit and flex the horse more in the shoulder. And then in the third uh, circle, I'll flex him into a little bit of uh, yielding his hindquarters, and, uh, which has a calming effect on the horse. And then we'll go straight, and then I'll do it the other direction. There's there's a ton of information on my website 
about uh, different calm down cues you can teach a horse. And uh, we'll put a link down in the show notes for this episode. Um, so practice some different calm down exercises. Uh, you need to uh, know how to do them in advance with your horse. They'll get a response quicker with your horse if you've practiced them in advance. Um, so find one or two different things that, that is going to be productive for you and your horse. Remember, the more changes of direction you make and the more transitions or changes of speed you make, the more responsive your horse will become. But be sure you keep it soft and slow. Now, hopefully you found a few tricks that are going to help you stay calm and focused on the day of your big ride. But after it's all over, I think it's really important that you do a debriefing. Did everything go well? Well, great. If so, what's your next step? Even if things went really well, I guarantee there's something you can improve on or something you might want to do a little bit differently next time. Um, even if it's just like I need less warm up with my horse or I need more, more warm up with my horse or whatever. So if it all went well, great. I think you still need to debrief it and think about what you want to do next, what you want to do differently. It's always important to recognize what you and your horse did well and pat yourself on the back for that. These are your strengths and you should always be aware of your strengths, recognize your strengths and build on them. Um, whether we're talking about your horse's strengths or your own strengths, those are your biggest assets. So you want to be aware of them and always build on them, utilize them. Now, if things didn't go perfectly on your ride or maybe they didn't go quite the way you envisioned, it's super critical to dissect the ride, to evaluate all of its components, and focus on where you can improve. Now, there's an old saying in horses, and it's a really important one, and it says, it's important to figure out what happened before what happened happened. In other words, if something went wrong with your ride, um, things fell apart at some point. What you want to go back to is what happened right before things fell apart, because that's where you need to focus your attention. In other ways, sometimes this is phrased is uh, what happened before the wheels fell off. So in other words, everything was going fine up until this point. Then things started to go poorly. So let's look at what happened before what happened happened. Chances are what you need to fix is a preliminary or a basic thing, not the end result. So you kind of need to go back. That's the way your horse's mind works. He, he always associates what happened before that event um, is what triggers his memory. So you need to go clear back to there. If things didn't go perfectly with your ride or you had some kind of breakdown in your ride, let yourself off the hook. Don't beat yourself up for mistakes. Or worse yet, don't blame your horse or blame someone else for things going wrong. This thing's behind you now. And the only reason you need to replay it is to find the errors and develop a plan to refine your skills. The only need reason to replay it it's to try to figure out what happened before what happened happened. 
And you want to make sure that as you replay this event, you pick out at least one thing that you and your horse did well. Even if you don't think your ride went perfectly, I guarantee you there are some things that you and your horse did well. And let yourself be happy and proud about that and build on that. And then you're going to go back and figure out what went wrong, break it down into its smallest possible components, and then go to work on those aspects before coming back to this endeavor again. You know, riding sports are complicated and you probably won't get everything right the first time out of the box. But with each new experience, you're going to build skills and you're going to gain knowledge that will keep you improving. So plan to build from there next time. And also, you now have a new baseline expectation of what this is going to go like. So you're going to be better prepared the next time you go out. Looking back at the whole process, think about how you want to improve and move forward. You know, it may be time to revisit your goal worksheet to help you refine your goals and or to come up with new goals. You can go to juliegoodnight.com slash horse goals to download fresh worksheets when you're ready to tackle your next goal. And now it's time for my favorite segment, What the Hey Q&A. Each month, we pick a few unique questions from our listeners and answer them on the air. If you'd like to submit a written question for What the Hey, just message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Some questions are edited slightly for clarity or length. The first question is from Lindsay. My horse walks so fast, he's right up the booty of the horse in front of him, preventing him from seeing the ground, and then he trips on ruts. I can slow him down, but it's constant effort and gets exhausting. No room to really circle him on the trail unless I want to be in poison oak or messing up the person behind me. Okay, Lindsay, well, yes, that that is a problem. And not only for your horse not being able to see and tripping, but because it's just plain rude and it's going to affect the other horses around you. Now, your horse is perfectly capable of rating his speed to the horses around him. You just haven't taught him that he has to do that when he's trail riding. And you're allowing him to get away with this kind of rude behavior repeatedly. So you need to become a much more proactive rider. First of all, you're going to have to go back and sort of reprogram your training. If I had you in the arena, I would want to see how well you can stop your horse, how abruptly you can stop your horse. Can you stop him back? Or, you know, are you hauling on your horse and you have to haul in his mouth for, you know, multiple steps before he finally agrees to stop? So first thing I would question is how much control do you actually have of your horse in the downward transition? And then a competent rider could teach a horse this in minutes by simply requiring the horse to rate his speed and not get closer and closer to the horse in front of him, no matter how fast or slow that horse in front of him walks. A slow horse has to rate his speed up. A fast horse has to rate his speed down. Look, horses move in herds together all the time. They do this all the time. They do it every single day in the herd. It's just that you have not placed this parameter or this requirement on your horse. 
So what I would do if I was going to retrain your horse, I'd have somebody come along with me on a training ride. Uh, Maybe I'd start with just one. And ultimately, I'd like to have two or three, you know, some in front, some behind, just kind of round out the horse's uh, manners. But there should be a consistent distance that you allow your horse to be. The conventional wisdom says one horse length between you and the horse in front of you. I will tell you that most horses on the trail are going to be a little bit closer than that. But never should you allow your horse to get anywhere close enough to possibly touch the horse in front of them because that's dangerous and rude behavior. So one thing you can, if you yourself are not very good at understanding where this boundary needs to be, when you're behind the horse in front of you on the trail, you should be able to look through your horse's ears and see the hind feet of the horse in front of you. If you can't see the horse's hind feet, you're too close. Now, your horse already thinks it's okay to just barge up on the horse in front of him and and touch him probably or irritate him. And, you know, that's something you've unfortunately taught him is okay. So now you're going to have to go back and teach him that's not okay. So first you have to set a clear boundary where uh, you're going to, the horse in front of you takes off. You ask your horse to walk forward. There's another thing. Make sure your horse doesn't just take off when the horse in front of you takes off, but he waits for a cue. and then. As as you walk down the trail, as your horse is approaching that consistent boundary that you've finally figured out needs to be set, as soon as he crosses that boundary, you're going to abruptly take hold of that horse, harshly stop him, and harshly back him up three or four steps, and then immediately go back to riding again. Then every time he gets to that boundary, you're going to do the same thing in a kind of a scolding manner so that he understands there's a clear boundary that he's not supposed to cross. And in short order, if your consistency is is good, in other words, the boundary you set is is clearly understandable to the horse because you've been uh, scolding him consistently at the exact same distance from that horse in front of you. And then the pressure that you use in the correction, the abruptly stopping and backing up a few steps is uh, sufficiently unpleasant that the horse doesn't like that happening. He will immediately figure out what the correct answer is so that that doesn't have to happen anymore. So horses are taught this every day and horses learn to act this way every day. So it's just simply something that is a hole in your horse's training and it's something that you need to fill. And our next question comes from Arden. I have a horse that is really good at yielding his hindquarters. Although when I take him to the round pen, he won't trot around the circle. I'll try to get to the side of him, but he just turns to face me. What do you suggest I do to fix this problem? Well, Arden, I'm afraid that your horse is uh, playing a game with you. I'm afraid that you have taught your horse the wrong thing by focusing too much on the horse yielding his hindquarters or disengaging the hindquarters. Not uncommon. Um, There are some clinicians out there that put, you know, kind of a unusual amount of focus on teaching the horse to yield his hindquarters. Um, I, I kind of approach that skill a little bit differently than a lot of trainers. First of all, there's, there's not much that's easier to do with a horse than to disengage his hindquarters, both from the ground and from the saddle. 
It's a very simple thing to ask the horse to do. So if you focus too much on yielding the hindquarters, you kind of can end up with a horse that skitters away from you on the ground that he just, as soon as you move towards his hip, he starts skittering away from you. And to me, that's not at all productive in communication or training. When I work on disengaging the hindquarters or moving the hip or yielding the hip, I want to be able to point at the horse's hip as a cue and have the horse take one step over. I'd like to be able to execute a perfect turn on the forehand, moving the horse's hip one step at a time. So I think that you have spent too much time focusing on yielding the hindquarters. So inadvertently, what you've taught the horse is that every time you approach, he should um, move his hindquarters away from you. Now, when it comes to circling activities like you do in the round pin or like you do lunging or on a lead line, if the horse yields his hindquarters anytime you move, you can never get the horse going because you can't get behind the drive line of the horse. So this is an example of how too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. So every time you're approaching this horse, he's moving his hip away from you. It means that you can't get in the position you need to be able to be in in order to drive the horse forward and away from you. So this works out very well for the horse because he doesn't want to trot in circles around you anyway. So you've taught him something that works out really well for him. And now every time you want to drive the horse forward and away from you, you can't get in the position to drive him because he's hiding his hindquarters from you and turning his hip away from you and facing you too much. This is actually more a problem with the handler than the horse. The horse in this instance has figured out that this thing works to its advantage. And by doing what you ask to move the hindquarters away from you, you can never get to the driving position. And so therefore he doesn't have to go in a circle around you. So he likes it that way. So look, I warn about this in every clinic where I teach circling work. We work on this because horses are quite clever and they can figure this stuff out really, really fast. So when you're doing circling work, let's say you're either in a round pen or you're on a lunge line or a lead line and you want the horse to circle around you, but the horse is facing you, in the current state you're in with your horse, if you try to creep around towards your horse's hip to get back behind the drive line of the horse to make him go forward, he's just going to continually turn and face you and you'll never get there. Instead, what you want to do is first redirect the nose of the horse. So I'll point my energy or my finger or my stick or the tail of my rope straight towards the nose of the horse. And I want to move the front end of the horse first. So I move the nose and then the shoulder away from me so that his side is to me rather than his front. And now I'm behind the drive line and I can make the horse go forward. So you simply need to undo what you've taught the horse, which is you've taught him that the answer to every question is to yield your hindquarters. Now you need to go back and work on getting control of your horse's nose and shoulder. Look, moving the shoulder of the horse is infinitely harder than moving the hip of the horse. I would put way more focus on learning to control your horse's shoulders. Um, that's the part that's lacking right now. And uh, so the simple answer to the problem you're having now 
is to redirect the nose and shoulder of the horse until the horse is parallel to the line of the circle and not perpendicular to it. And then you should be able to drive the horse forward. Well, that's all we have time for today. I hope you're busy working towards your horsemanship goals for this year and that you're inspired to accomplish something that's important to you. And if you feel like sharing, I'd love to read your comments. So if you have questions for What the Hay or podcast topics you'd like me to address, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Ride On with Julie Goodnight is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Next month, I'll be back with another brand new episode. So be sure to hit subscribe if you haven't already so you won't miss it and invite your equestrian friends to join us. If you like the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts to rate and review it. It means a lot to me and it helps more horse lovers like you and me find this podcast. Don't forget to check out my online memberships to my academy. You'll find lots of training resources there, hundreds of videos, full episodes of my TV show, audios and articles on the topics you want to know more about, or get online coaching from me with my Interactive Academy membership. I'll help you assess where you and your horse are now so you can move forward with a structured 12-month training plan and personalized coaching from me every step of the way. You can also enroll in my Build Your Confidence with Horses short course. Just go to juliegoodnight.com join and start your ride. No matter where you are in your horsemanship journey, whether you're new to horses or an old hand, whether you're training a green horse or refining your upper level skills, I hope you found some helpful information here to make your horse life better. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening and please stay safe and enjoy the ride.